tidy as that. He's always, always knocking down and going on at the same time as, as building up because that's life and that's how it works. But that's the idea behind these seminars. We wanted to help you to take a step back and really see from maybe an objective perspective um, how we tend to think in this part of the world and, um, and as, a, as a good mirror for ourselves and our own lives, thinking about our own discipleship, and then also for those that we're obviously looking to engage with in the world who don't yet know the Lord, and trying to understand some of the, some of the patterns uh, of thinking uh, behind classic sort of Western secular thought and do that from a biblical perspective. And I could think of no better person than Dan to help us with that. So um, Dan's based with us um, at Revelation. He's just, just got a tremendous amount of grace on him from the Lord in terms of being able to think clearly, biblically, and articulate uh, sometimes quite complex thoughts in really accessible ways. Um, he was our, he led our kids' work for four years, so he had to learn how to articulate things in really clear ways, and um, uh, I think you'll all you know, agree after these two days that he's able to do that. So, um, yeah, so it's great to have you here, and um, there'll, there'll be chance for Q&A along the way. We really want to make this interactive so that you get to engage with it um, as stimulatingly as possible. So um, let's give a welcome to Dan. Good afternoon. You guys all doing well? Yeah, enjoying yourself so far? Yeah, you're all very awake at the moment because it's only day two, so I'll have to work much harder tomorrow morning, I'm sure. Um, so we're going to be talking about thinking, and Steph basically just did my intro for me, which is great, so it means I then have extra, extra five minutes to do other stuff. Um, so like Steph, Steph said, we're going to be really thinking through what is it that really kind of underpins the way that we think. So um, not just what do we think, but What's underlying that? What's kind of, um, if you want to think about the classic iceberg analogy, you can see what's above the surface in an iceberg. But if you've ever seen one of those, if you go onto Google Images and type iceberg in, if you ever see a, a, a shot of an iceberg where you're looking at it from under the water, it's actually quite impressive. Where you, you kind of hear people say, oh, 90% uh, of the iceberg's under the water. And you think, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you see a photo of it and you think, oh, it really is. Um, and the assumptions and the, the ways we think about the world without necessarily processing it in a very obvious, um, well-thought-through way, the assumptions that we make about life are kind of the 90% that are driving the way we live. And actually thinking through things in a very um, practical, real way doesn't necessarily constitute that, that much of how we think. It's, just, it's stuff that's going on underneath the surface. So that's the idea over the next few days. So we're going to be doing some thinking unapologetically, you can't really have a seminar called Gospel-Centered Thinking in a Broken World without demanding some kind of thinking. Um, but I want to make it clear from the outset, it's, the aim is not for it to be an academic exercise. My weakness here is I would love it to be an academic exercise because I find that fun. Some of you here, and probably a larger majority than if you just, if you just took a chunk of average Joe blogs from, from your church, I reckon a higher percentage of us would be up for doing some kind of academic level thinking than most people in our church, but some of us would be here thinking, I, was, I did not sign up for an academic philosophy seminar. What I want to convince us of is that actually thinking through the way we think is for everyone. And actually a major part of the gospel is about taking the things that underpin the way that we think and changing them and transforming them. Um, and so in that sense, saying gospel-centered thinking in a broken world, um, I think is absolutely vital. Um, because if you don't think straight, your actions won't then end up being straight. And they'll feed into each other and we'll end, we will end up making decisions that feel completely natural to us, but that when you actually really compare them to Scripture, you compare, compare, compare them to the Gospel, 
um, you'd probably have the Apostle Paul or Peter scratching his head thinking, why on earth are you doing that? Whereas for us, they just seem completely natural. And so we have to be really, really careful from time to time just do a bit of an MOT and think, what is underpinning the way I'm thinking? So that's kind of where we're going for the next two days. Um, we got, so seminar one, oh, by the way, the projectors decided to blow the bulb just before the start. So for those of you who can see the screens at the front, there will be a few verses and slides coming up. I'll give you the references. Um, for those of you who have your Bibles, yeah? We're all a bit closer together as well, which is nice. So there's, there's going to be a bit of interaction as well um, today. So I'm going to get you guys discussing stuff and thinking through things in your groups. Um, and so if you're a bit closer in, it just makes things a little bit easier. So um, the first so seminar we're doing today, I've called The Darkened Mind and the Gospel. So what we're going to do today is kind of look at the bad news, basically. For, not for the whole thing. There is going to be good news. Um, but we're going to be thinking through what is it biblically, that underpins the way that the world thinks. So what are things, assumptions that the world makes, and what is it that underpins those assumptions? Um, and we're going to try and understand um, how, how the world thinks through gospel lenses, basically. And then tomorrow, um, after we've looked at the end of the session, we're going to look at how the gospel then actually is the answer to that dark and broken thinking that you get in the world. And then tomorrow what we're going to do is actually understand the fact that the, the gospel teaches us that once you get saved, your mind is changed, but that doesn't mean that the process is over. And actually, there's a call for us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And we're going to look tomorrow, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that look like for us as individuals? What does it look like for us as, as leaders? What does it look like for us as a corporate body of Christ? And to just think through, we're going to look through basically the letter of First Corinthians and think through how does Paul as a church leader, help his congregations to develop gospel-centered thinking? How does he help them to be transformed by the renewing of their mind? And we'll just do a bit of thinking around that and also practically thinking through what can we do in our lives very intentionally and sometimes not as intentionally to build right thinking in the way that we go through stuff. Does that sound good? Good. Okay. All right. We'll see if you still think it sounds good after an hour. Um, so we're going to launch in seminar one, The Darkened Mind and the Gospel. So what I w the point I want to make right at the beginning is that everyone is a thinker. So we say thinker, and we probably automatically think, ah, someone who sits down and reads lots of books and spends lots of time, generally has quite a long beard, sat in a seminar room, scratching it and thinking about stuff. But actually, we are all thinkers. Everyone has an opinion on stuff. Literally, you just, uh, just have to go up on Facebook and watch various things that have been linked and cl click the comments section and you will simultaneously discover that everyone has an opinion about something and will also have to struggle to not lose hope in humanity in certain situations. So you just think, everyone has this really, really strong opinion as if, as if this is the kind of be-all and end-all of everything and they're stating what they think. Most of those people aren't sat around in universities discussing concepts. They're just normal people who have normal jobs but who think about various things. And so I want to make it clear everyone is a thinker. I don't think that means that we are just minds on a stick, but by virtue of being human, we are people who think and think deeply about stuff that we particularly care about. Um, and I want to I, I look at today, what is it, because the whole world is thinking, what is it that underpins the way that the world thinks? And we're going to do a little bit of, um, I'm going to 
do a little bit of diagnosing today. For those of you who are medical professionals, this is what you do every single day. I'm terribly sorry to, <laughs> to make you have to do it again when you thought you might be getting out of that world for a few days. But we're going to do some diagnosing. Where it's basically, when you've got an illness, you, the thing you can look at is the symptoms. You can look at what are people, what's this person doing, how does this person feel, what's their temperature, what are their blood pressure levels like, what's their heartbeat like, whatever. You check stuff out, you check the symptoms, and then you use those symptoms to figure out what the illness that's causing that is. And so what we're going to do today is look at the symptoms. What are the things that people just assume are absolutely fine to do or absolutely fine to think? Or what are just certain things that you, you talk to people who don't know Jesus or in some situations people who do know Jesus and they just assume that this is absolutely fine to think this way. So though that, that's looking at the symptoms. And then we're going to be looking biblically what underpins those symptoms. What's the illness that's kind of infected the whole of humanity and leads them to think in that particular kind of way. And you might wonder why it's worth doing this. Because obviously we want to make sure that we're thinking in a gospel-centered way. So surely the focus should be on the gospel. I think it's really important to make sure we understand why the world thinks the way it does, partly because the Bible explains why, so if it's in there, it makes sense to look at it. But also on a few different levels, evangelism. If you don't understand the way that people think, the way you present the gospel might not, might not be the most helpful way possible. Now, obviously, we heard this morning, and something I'm going to touch on is actually the only way of someone coming to know the gospel is through the Spirit moving in them. But when you read how the apostles and Jesus proclaim their message, in the New Testament, you realize they adapt the way that they present it depending on how the people that they were talking to were thinking. So I think evangelism, it's really important to understand what is it that people are thinking, why do they think like that, how can I connect the gospel to the story that they have and show how it fits, but also show how it collides. And we're going to do a bit of thinking about that later. But it's also important in terms of our own personal life. Paul, over and over again, says, I don't want you to be deceived to his churches. Are we able to sniff out when worldly ways of thinking creep into our lives. So a little bit like a metal detector. You're kind of walking around with a metal detector. As soon as it comes near something that's metallic, it will just start going crazy. Start beeping, going, and you're like, okay, there's something there. Do we have that kind of mind when it comes to stuff, ways of thinking that aren't gospel-centered? Once we catch a whiff of something, we think, that, that is not gospel-centered. That's not biblical. Have we got that metal detector kind of mind? And actually part of developing... The mind of Christ, part of growing in gospel-centered thinking, is actually developing that metal detector-like mindset where it's not that you've necessarily thought everything through when you hear something, but you've so developed a way of thinking that's gospel-saturated that when you hear something that goes against it, immediately something doesn't feel right. Before you even necessarily thought it through, something in your brain thinks, that doesn't sound right. So that's an, another reason. I think also... Um, for those of us who are leaders, particularly, I suppose, more in a, in a church context, maybe, for pastoring people, are you able to help people to actually understand what, what's the root of the, your thinking problem here? You're not thinking straight about this. I want you to understand what the root of that is, and I want you to understand that the gospel is the solution to that way of thinking. So I think it's a really important exercise. Um, so even though we're going to end up with the gospel being the solution, I think it's really important to make sure that we look at why does the world think the way that it does, and also, how can we avoid that kind of way of thinking becoming ingrained in our minds? Um, and I think there might just be a few challenges for us to think through in terms of perhaps ways that assumptions, particularly in the Western secular world, that can actually creep into Christian thinking. Um, and it's helpful to just expose those from time to time, just to make sure that we are thinking straight. So, 
time for a little bit of an activity. I'm going to get you guys thinking and talking at various points um, during the next few days. So if you want to, maybe in groups of two, three, four, however, like kind of maybe just turn to the people next to you, I would like you for four or five minutes, if you could grab a piece of paper, that would be great. So you can, because you will need what you write down a little bit later to, for the next bit of settings. Um, I would like you to note down in your own experience, what are, th- what are things that people in your life who don't know Jesus, who aren't Christians, what kind of actions do they assume are absolutely fine? What kind of um, things do they think? So we're thinking kind of surface level thinking, and they don't even ask a question about whether it's right or wrong. They just think it, and just, there's an assumption going on that that's absolutely fine. There's, why on earth would any reasonable person ever think anything else? So obviously, got people from probably a few different countries here, but I imagine... I think most of us are from Europe, so we probably will come up with relatively similar answers, though it would be great if some people aren't, then that hopefully will make things a little bit more multicultural. But think through, what is it, what actions do people do that they assume are just fine, and what ways of thinking do people have that they just assume are fine, they don't need to give a defense for? So in four or five minutes in your groups, have a bit of a think about that, and then we'll feed back. And what we'll do is a bit of diagnosing later, thinking, why do people think that way? absolutely fine for me to spend my money on whatever I want. That kind of, that's the kind of thinking that we're thinking through. And obviously other stuff, it doesn't have to sound kind of as dark and bad as that.
Okay. So I'm sure you guys could keep talking on for long and long, which is a really good sign, by the way, because with what, obviously, with what Tom was talking about this morning, about the kind of being convicted of being living in a Christian bubble, that's, to be honest, probably I kind of felt convicted by that. But the fact that you guys are talking so much suggests that a lot of you here are not suffering from that particular problem. You definitely know what people are thinking, or at least you know what they're saying. Um, and we're going to be thinking through what underpins that. So that's really encouraging, that unless you just started talking about the football halfway through, there was a lot of talking going on. Um, okay, so maybe if you guys want to um, might just take a little bit of bravery, if you want to shout out particular things that, um, that, you su- that you suggested, here's something that my friends or people around me just take for granted. Does anyone want to kick us off? I'm special. That's good. Okay. I'm special. Okay. And then anything else? Instant gratification. Yep. It's the kind of the classic McDonald's sign there. Um, it's, that's, that's kind of what underlines a lot of, um, well, I don't know whether it's McDonald's that led to that or the other way around, but that idea of I want it now, I get it now kind of thing. Um, think about the McDonald's sign, which is terribly drawn. But, um, okay, anything else? Rationality is king. That's a good quote. Um, not because it's true, but that's something that a lot of people do think. Rationality is king. Um, so you, you talk to someone like one of the new atheists, for example, so the very vocal people like Richard, Richard Dawkins, um, they will basically say it's all about reason. And very often their reason isn't quite up to scratch anyway, but their, their, their way of thinking is rationality is king. Things that you can think through logically or test in a laboratory, that's ultimate reality. And if we can't do it that way, then it's not true. Um, a way a lot of people think. Um, they might not necessarily explicitly say it that way, but I think that underlines a lot of thinking. Any other things that you? Okay. I <laughs> let's go for let's go for hands up then. That might be easier. If it feels good, do it. Yep. Um. Right. Yep. Over here. I have the right to a good life. Some of you might be noticing a common theme already among a few of these. Um, Yeah, um, the subjects and uh, ideas behind them are quite common. Yeah? Sex with whoever, whenever, yeah. I like the fact that these are all as quotes because it kind of makes them a little bit more real. It's not just, here's an abstract idea. It's here's what people are kind of in a, in a caricatured way are very often saying. Sex with whoever, whenever. Um, yes. Pursue pleasure ever obtained. Good. There really is a common theme, isn't there? Um, Okay, let's have two more maybe. Um, keep yours written down so that when we do the next activity, you can not just think about the ones that are up here, 
you did have your hand up a while ago, yeah? I think, yeah, yeah. Okay, as long as no one gets hurt. Justify my line and dishonesty, provided that I am not prime minister. Seems to be the, <laughs> the general chorus. It's true, though. Very like there is. You've probably we'll, you've probably already noticed there is a very strong common theme to a lot of these, um, which obviously we'll, we'll see it is the individual aspect of it. Actually, that statement for most people, the oh, I can justify it, but if you project that then onto a corporation or people who are in power very different way of thinking. Anyway, we're going to have to stop there for that, but hold on to your thoughts. Hopefully they're jotted down. Um, so that's kind of some of the symptoms. So what, what, what we got? We got, so I'm special, instant gratification. I can get what, what I want when I want. Doesn't, I don't have to wait. Um, rationality is king, really, really big thing that a lot of people would, um, would suggest. If it feels good, we've got quite a few variations on that, really. So I can have sex with whoever I want, whenever that kind of goes along that same line. I have a right to a good life as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. Um, those are, I think, the things I kind of expected people to say, which is good to know that I obviously, in, to a certain extent, have my finger on the pulse a little bit of what people uh, are thinking. Um, so, if those are the symptoms, we need to figure out what the illness is. Because if we just treat the symptoms, you end up putting a plaster on cancer, and plasters do not help with cancer. They help with pus. So the, the solution needs to be addressing the very cause, the illness. And that's what we're going to look at now. We're going to look at what is the illness that's underpinning all of these different ways of thinking. Um, and these obviously, probably because we're thinking, what do our non-Christian friends think? And we're, I imagine, probably almost unconsciously formulating them in a very kind of, um, I don't know, very strong way. But a lot of these thoughts very often can creep into the way we think. And I think it's, it's important to realize that. Um, we might not go around saying, I have the right to a good life, in those words. But we might end up saying it in very different, much more subtle ways. And often very Christianized ways. Um, and so it's just aware, even though we are diagnosing the problem with broken thinking in the world, we are also, to a certain extent, saying we don't want to be deceived. And if we suddenly recognize some of this way of thinking here, assuming that this is a wrong way of thinking, um, then we've got to make sure that we're alert to that. So let's think through what's the illness. Really important to understand what the illness is because we need to find the solution, which you know is ultimately the gospel. I'll give you the end of the story before, uh, before we've got there. This isn't a novel. I'm not going to keep you in suspense. Um, but also, if we don't understand what's underpinning it, a few other things could happen. We could end up going around in circles ranting about how terrible the world is. If we don't understand the illness that the world is suffering from, we can end up looking at it as if this is just all kind of um, all really well thought through decisions that people have made. If we don't understand the illness that's underpinning it, we can just end up ranting. Oh, isn't it terrible that they do this? Isn't it terrible that the government made this decision? I can't believe these terrible people who have decided that um, you're not allowed to let immigrants in. Isn't it terrible? And you end up going around in circles ranting. Or you can end up not loving people because you don't understand that whilst we are held responsible for the way we think, we are also, as humans, infected by a sickness 
that actually, it doesn't remove responsibility, but it does infect us. And actually, our response to people who think this kind of way should not be, I can't believe you think like that. The response should be, I love you, and I want to help you find Jesus. And as you find Jesus, he will correct the way that you think. So I think it's really important that we do realize there's something deeper going on. Otherwise, we just look at, look at the symptoms and misdiagnose it and end up getting really angry about what the world's doing. Which, by the way, getting angry about injustice is not wrong, but getting angry with people as if that's the only response we're going to have is not the right thing to do. So let's think through the illness that's going on. You guys following so far? Good. Okay. We're going to look at Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there, um, or you can read it come up on the screen. This is probably the most in-depth explanation of what motivates broken thinking in the world. Um, it's a very full-on passage that um, you will probably most of you be familiar with it, um, and it's pretty full-on, but there are a few lessons that we get throughout it that help us understand that there's something going on under the way the world thinks. There's something that goes on in the heart of every human being that leads to broken thinking, and there's also something that's gone on with humanity as a whole that leads to broken thinking. So, Let's read through that together. So verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I think after Tom's sermon earlier, that last paragraph suddenly takes on a different kind of dimension. I don't think you, you don't go up to non-Christians and say, this is what you're like, but that is kind of what's going on underneath the surface a lot. It's a pretty full-on passage, um, and what we do have to understand that in this context, Paul is attacking pagan worship. So in that sense, the, the things that you read of in this passage might not all be things that our friends are into, but underlying it, there are some very similar things that are going on. In fact, underlying the general human condition, there are some key things in this passage that we need to make sure we pay attention to. Although as you read through it, we may well be closer to this kind of way of living in our society than in lots of, um, lots of times in the past. Um, kind of think back to the Victorian age and Christendom and so on. Um, a lot of the things in this passage would not necessarily have been stuff that everyone would have said is absolutely fine. So it's just interesting how 
that actually a lot of the stuff in here seems to be very often things that people just take for granted as fine. They might not, they will not take for granted that being haters and slanderers are, but actually men having sex with men, just normal, isn't it? And so I think it's really interesting that there is a lot of overlap in terms of how our culture thinks and how the culture in the time that Paul was writing this thinks. So we're going to look through just a few things that you see going on here. So I'm going to pick up on four things that, that Paul suggests about broken thinking. Um, and we're going to look through what's going on so we can understand what is it, where has the world gone wrong in its thinking, um, what's underlying that. The first of that is the knowledge has been suppressed. So can you have the next? There we go. We've got the four, four there, so you get a bit of a preview of it. Knowledge has been suppressed. So if you look at the, um, the, the first verse, 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, I know, you take, take something like hypnotism, for example. Very often, if someone's suffering from particular thought patterns, um, one of the ways you go about it in, in certain circles of, of healthcare is you would end up hypnotizing them, and you would, help, you would help them to replace the way they think with particular other things. You kind of put them in a subconscious state. Now, doctors are going to correct me about this because I'm probably getting all the medical stuff wrong, but you essentially you put them in a kind of subconscious state, and you help them to replace or suppress a particular way of thinking. That's what the world has done with the knowledge of God. It's really interesting. Paul says they suppress the truth. They knew God. They know, although they know God, they don't honor him as God. It's, just, it's, really, it's really hard to look around the world and think, actually, everyone does know God. They know that God exists. They know that God has, has eternal power and divine nature. It's what Paul's telling us. But the truth has been suppressed. If you've suppressed something, it's as good as if you didn't believe it. That's, that's essentially what's going on with, with the world. They don't think they know God. They don't think that when they look at creation, they see it pointing to a God. Because they have suppressed truth. And humanity as a whole has done that, and individuals in their hearts end up doing that. Which is why, if you, you very often you read this passage and you think, but my friends don't seem like that. My friends don't seem like they've actively suppressed the truth about God. That's the problem with suppression is it ends up leading to the point where you think you don't know something when actually you do, and it's just something that's been suppressed. So that's the first point to realize, is actually there, there is a knowledge of God that people have, but it's been suppressed, either through humanity as a whole suppressing it, or individuals. It's just interesting, you read through this passage, try and mirror this passage with the fall of man in Genesis 3, and there is so much overlap. It's almost like Paul saying, humanity has fallen as a whole, but individuals end up falling as well. The fall is repeated in every single human being, and part of that is suppressing the truth about God. And we could probably debate all day long about what that actually looks like, and is that actually, that doesn't feel like that to my friends, but that's, that's what's going on in this passage. Paul says they know it, but they've suppressed it. And as a result of suppressing it, they don't even think they know it anymore. So really, that's deceptive. That's what actually a lot of the thinking that's going on here is. So we've got knowledge has been suppressed. We then get a few different exchanges. So you've heard the classic, classic illustration, um, if you want to get someone to stop thinking about a pink elephant, you don't tell them, stop thinking about a pink elephant. You tell them, think about, I don't know, a blue mouse or something like that. Because human beings don't just sit there and say, I'm not going to think about this anymore. They think about something else. That's how you stop thinking about something. Like kind of, classically, like, I'm not going to, like, I don't know, I, I, am, I am not going to think about the fact I really want to buy this car even though I don't need it. I'm really not going to think about it. I am not going to think about it. 
you're going to be thinking about it for hours. You end up replacing that thought with something else. And in some way, that's actually a very good practice because it's actually something we should be doing as Christians. But the reverse also works as well. That when humanity ends up giving in to a darkened mind, they replace various things with other things. And the first thing they do is they replace the, glo- the glory of the immortal God for creatures. So that say, Paul says they knew God, but they didn't honor him as God and give him praise. And instead, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's exactly what happened at the fall. It might not have been a statue of a serpent, but they exchanged the glory of God for what the serpent was saying, or the glory of God for the idea that they could be God. There's an exchange that's gone on. They haven't just said, no, we're not, we're not going to listen to God. They've exchanged his glory for something else. Idolatry, if there's one thing you remember in terms of what underlines wrong thinking, is this. Idolatry is what fundamentally unlo- underlines wrong thinking. If the glory of God has been replaced with something else, you can be the most clever philosopher or scientist in the world, you may well, you will come up with a lot of stuff that is genuinely true, but the foundation has been completely replaced, which means that ultimately your thinking is, has been darkened. It's important to realize that, I'll pick up on it, pick up a bit on it later, but remember it's darkened thinking, not necessarily wrong in every single aspect, but the foundation has been changed. The glory of God has been exchanged for something created. And as soon as that happens, you go, end up going down a very, very dark path. The second thing that's been exchanged is the truth has been exchanged for a lie. So in this case, explicitly, right thinking has been exchanged for wrong thinking. Now, people work with stories, generally. Even, even those of us who prefer bullet points, if someone, talk, if someone asks you a question, who are you, what do you do, you tend to reply with a story. You don't do a bullet point presentation. Humanity, through replacing the glory of God with images, replacing the glory of God with stuff that's created, has taken the true narrative about God and has replaced that with a false narrative. And actually, what we need to do, as we'll see later, is to proclaim the true narrative of the gospel in order to replace that. But there's been an exchange that's gone on there. And what that then leads to is an exchange of natural for unnatural. Or another way of putting it is right actions for wrong actions. In verse 26, it says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Um, Again, just two examples there, but you could say that for many, many other sinful actions. There's a replacement of what is good in terms of righteous acts, what is natural, that's been replaced with what is unnatural. But it had its source at the fact that the glory of God had been replaced with created stuff. If you replace God's glory with creatures, you will end up down a spiral which ends to dark, which leads to darkened thinking. Another thing to pick up on, and this is really key also, again, when we think about it the other way around, mind and actions are related. It's really hard to figure out here. What, what went wrong first? Was it the fact that human beings thought the wrong way and then acted out of that? Or was it that they acted the wrong way and then thought in the wrong way as a result? And it's actually really hard to figure out. You look at it and think, by their unrighteousness, they suppressed the truth. Does that mean there was an unrighteous way of thinking that then led to suppressing the truth that led to actions? Or is it that they did unrighteousness and then, and I think to a certain extent, Paul's probably leaving it a little bit ambiguous because he understands that actually the mind, the way we think and actions are related in a circular kind of way. It's not just that the way you think influences the way you act, it's that the way you act influences the way you think as well. It's really important to realize a lot of these statements are because people have built habits 
It's not because they've thought through every single... It's not, they haven't sat down and thought, I have thought through the logic of my right to have sex with whoever I want. I've th thought through the principles, drawn up bullet points, figured out equations, and I have concluded it is true. What's happened is the culture has propagated habits. They've bought into those habits, and as a result, they now think that way. It's really hard to figure out what come, came first because there's a circularity when it comes to mind and, um, and, and actions. We're creatures of habit. There's a, a book that I'd like to plug. Is, um, I haven't actually read it, but I've, read the, I've listened to a seminar on it. I didn't get around to reading it. By a guy called James Smith, um, who's a philosopher from um, a seminary in the States. Don't let the fact that he's a philosopher put you off. He's a really, really good writer. Writes basically popular-level stuff on philosophy for those of us who can't be bothered to pick up the big books. Um, so I just read him rather than reading all of the, all of the really complicated guys. But he, he, basically, he, he has a book called We Are What We Love, and he makes the point that actually love fundamentally is about habit. It's about what you choose to habituate yourself to loving. Because rather, he says, you, you don't necessarily sit down and think one day, I really love Marmite. You get into the habit of eating it, and you're like, I really love it now. And he says, actually, so much of what we do isn't going on in here very clearly. It's as a result of habits that we've built over our lives that then end up to a particular way, leading to a particular way of thinking. So maybe a, a way of putting it, putting it is um, to think about exercise. Or I'm a, I'm a bit of a runner, so I'll do it kind of running illustration style. Um, but Mide, do you want to come up here, actually? There's, there's running going on, so we'll, we'll make it a bit more bit visual. Mide, we're going to Mide. Mide's a proper like athlete and so on, but we're going to imagine he's not at the moment. Um, Mide hates physical activity, hates running, hates it, absolutely detests it, and so as a result, he doesn't do it. But one day, he just like, I don't know. Someone manages to convince him. I, if if you do this, I'll end up. I don't know. If you go for four runs a week, I'll end up giving you a load of money. So Mide decides, okay, at this point, I might as well get into it. So he goes on his first run and hates it, absolutely hates it. He's like, yeah, he just gets 100 meters in and he's dead already. He's thinking, oh my goodness, how, I'm not going to be able to do this. Day two on it again, still hates it. <laughs> Day three, he's like, okay, this is now becoming a bit of a habit. I hate it still. Day four goes by, still habit, doesn't like it. A few weeks in, he's still doing that because he's got the motivation of money coming up. But what he, what he finds, and obviously this doesn't work for any, everyone. I'm not saying that everyone here, if you suddenly start running, you'll love it. But the way I've found out is after a few weeks, you start thinking in a different way. You actually, something which caused you lots of discomfort and pain suddenly becomes a habit. And you suddenly think, this isn't actually that bad. I can actually do that. I can do more than 100 meters in one go. And at this point, a few weeks in, Mide's loving it. He's, Mide's thinking has changed as a result of his actions changing. And, okay, I'm not making a point about running or sport here. I'm not saying that, every, like, I don't think that would work for me with swimming. I just think swimming is fundamentally wrong and no one should do it. But, but the point is, I, so I, I, I like running. When I started off, it was like, oh, my goodness, am I going to have to do this again? A few months in, I'm like, you suddenly start thinking in a different way. You think, am I going to be able to fit in a run tomorrow with what I've got on? The way you think suddenly changes because you started doing something as a habit. And um, James Smith makes that really, really helpful point. Um, and I think it's important to realize that. There's a statement, I think Tim, I heard Tim Keller quote, he said, the Nazis killed the Jews first because they hated them. He said, then they hated the Jews because they killed them. And he's making the point there's a very clear link between what, you, what becomes a habit in your life and the way you actually think.
I mean, you probably just you probably only need to ask parents here. When you when you have a ch- child, you basically you get into the habit because you have this maternal instinct that just says, "I I need to keep loving this child," and you love them and you keep loving them and you keep loving them, and they grow up and they might that. Again, Tim, Tim Keller example here. He says that child eventually may have no redeeming social value whatsoever. They might be an absolute nightmare for everyone around them, but you love them because you've spent years and years and years and years habituating yourself to serving them. And action and mind are very, very closely intertwined, which explains partly how we can think in a gospel-centered way. We'll see that tomorrow. But it also explains why so many of these opinions are not thought through. When you sit down and reason with someone about them, they will very often just kind of stare at you blankly because actually it's coming out of habit rather than necessarily logical processes. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong for thinking to come out of processes. You just need to make sure the processes are right for, you know, for the right kind of thinking. Otherwise, we all just end up becoming philosophy professors in universities. And in, instead, what we need to be people is people who are habituating ourselves to think in particular ways. And what happens throughout this passage is God gives over the people to what they to what they're thinking so they end up they end up by their unrighteousness suppressing the truth and they end up replacing the glory of god with images and creatures and as a result god gives them up which basically means he's saying go ahead reap the consequences of what you are doing what theologians call the kind of the passive wrath of god it's not that he's actively inflicting on them he's saying i let you do what you want and it leads down a spiral and god again says i'll let you do what you want and eventually, although it probably doesn't take that long actually here, you get deception. You get people who think that they are being really wise and, ex- and instead are actually being foolish. You think, like, think of examples from the Old Testament of nations that worship gods that were made of stone who thought they were really clever, who thought they were great, who thought they were mighty. And time after time you get that with Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Is this not Babylon that I have built, this kind of... I'm thinking of myself in a really great way. The gods of Babylon have been with me. And God says, you are, you're a fool. You're a fool. You don't actually understand what the truth is. And deception is awful because you can't see it. That's the whole point of deception. And so actually when we're talking to people who are like this, if we understand that that's what's going on under the surface, suddenly we don't just look at it and go, I can't believe you think like that. We can look at it and think, well, the, the gospel-centered part of me really does not like that way of thinking. But because I also understand what the problem is, I can love you. And I can love you because you are not just someone who has gone through a process of thinking in a wrong way. That has happened. But you are also infected with an illness that you need to be cured from. And therefore, I'm going to show love to you. And going to give you the answer through loving you rather than coming up with loads of angry blog posts about how terrible these people are. Not that, not that it's wrong to write blog posts about particular issues. But the way we respond will be different if we understand what's going on underneath. So what's gone on is as a result of all of these, these four things and many other things going on, we end up with a humanity that is deceived. It's not that every single thing that humans do or say is wrong. I mean, we, like, you would, we would not send our children to state schools if we thought that every single thing that was taught was wrong. But the foundation that's underlying it has been skewed because there's been a replacement that goes on. It's a little bit like trying to have a tea party on a bouncy castle. You could have all of the, good, the right stuff there, but the foundation is shaky. And we need to understand that's what's going on under the surface. So when people suddenly come out with this stuff as if it's completely obvious, what's going on is there's been an exchange, a replacement. Mind and action have kicked in, and as a result, deception has happened. Because, you trace it all the way back to the root, 
They suppress the knowledge of God through replacing God with something else. So that's what's going on under the surface. So you end up basically with a culture that sees the natural, the, the unnatural as natural and the natural as unnatural. And so what you end up with is basically a different worldview. So I, got, I wear glasses because I need to wear glasses because the guys in the front row are okay, but I cannot make out your faces at the back at all. So I need glasses to correct the way that I look. The world is looking, we all actually, we all look through glasses. The assumptions that we make, the things that we just at a non-kind of cerebral level think through, we're looking through lenses at the world. And a way of talking about that is to talk about worldview. So worldview is basically what, what do you, what are the assumptions and things you just don't, you don't even think about it, you just assume are right. Those are the lenses you're wearing. It's what you look at the world through rather than what you're looking at. And so what happens, if you have the next slide up, is the world ends up with this, basically. Got broken lenses. Lenses that actually you can't see clearly through because the foundation has been changed. And so what I'd like us to do is to think, is to think through what is the worldview, what's, what's the worldview that's actually behind a lot of the way that people are thinking here. And so a way of helping you to do that is we're going to just pick up on a couple of things that we saw in the passage, which is one, there's been an exchange of God for something else, for something created. So think through with the stuff that you had on your sheets, what is the thing that's created that's been exchanged uh, in, in the place of God, in the particular statements that you're seeing here, on the particular statements on your sheets of paper? And also think through what narrative has been created? What story have people created that underlines the way that they think? So give you an example, the, uh, the story that would underline atheist thinking. So we're replacing the truth about God, the true narrative with a lie. The thing that would replace atheist thinking is out of, again, caricature, sorry, but out of pure chance, 13.7 billion years ago, a gigantic explosion happened and we are a result of that in a very condensed form. It would be a kind of underlying narrative that they'd replace the true narrative with. So have a think through, could you phrase maybe a narrative that is going underneath, the kind of the iceberg that's underneath the water for the particular statements you've done? Does that make sense? Great, I'll give you guys a few minutes to do that, and then we'll come back together and think, is there a solution to this? Um, it was basically, oh, am I on still?
All right. Okay, so we're kind of thinking through what, what's, what are the lenses that the world's looking through when they make those kind of statements? What's, what are things that they can't even see? You, don't, you get used to your glasses, you don't realize they're there. What, is, what are the things the world doesn't realize are there in these statements? In terms of what has the glory of God been exchanged for? I'm not saying that every, in every statement the glory of God has been exchanged for the same thing, although there's one more obvious one than, than others. But what kind of things did you see the glory of God exchanged for? Yeah? Glory of man, excellent. Was that, I imagine, did a lot of people get that? Yeah, glory of man. Um, did anyone get anything else for any of the statements at all? Just interested. Because I think in the West that is, as we'll see, probably, if it could potentially be the only thing underlying a lot of Western culture. Yes? Okay, yeah, so almost you've replaced God with the creation of pleasure in that sense. So yeah, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Good, yeah. Yeah. So again, kind of underlying that is I've only got one life. It's that kind of, it's that, I mean, the statements, the fact that a lot of them either have explicitly I in it or have that underlying it is quite telling. Um, yeah, did, and in terms of narratives that are underpinning it, obviously that's a bit of a harder question to answer just off the cuff, but did, any, did anyone come up with kind of example narratives? Yeah. Excellent. So uh, I suppose, in a sense, the story of modernism is, which kind of, I suppose, still ongoing to a certain extent, but we've re now been replaced with postmodernism for like again, a great original kind of name. After modernism, let's go for, uh, for postmodernism. The story of modernism is basically kind of in the European, uh, European Enlightenment uh, in, I can't remember, I think it's the 1800s, where you basically get this idea that human reason is going to get us to the point where we kind of... Um, where we kind of climax, basically. The, the, the climax of humanity is coming because we've now discovered that reason is the key thing. And that was the narrative of the Enlightenment. It was, as human beings, we are going to be able to make the world the best place it can be because we have discovered thinking. And we can think through stuff now, and we have reason and rationality. And so in that sense, the, the story of, the of modernism is actually, the, is actually eschatological. It has an end goal. And the reason for that end goal is humans get there eventually. So that's very much what's underlying modernism is we as rational thinkers will get there. So you kind of take God out of the story. In the beginning, there was a big explosion and then over a long period of time, eventually human beings came. And now we've got to the point in history where human beings have become reasonable thinking creatures, got rid of the superstition of religion, and we are going to advance towards the eschaton, the goal, and it's going to be amazing. And that's what underlines... To be honest, a lot of people still nowadays think in that way. I don't, most, your average Joe Bloggs is generally not postmodern, although it's particularly, I think, in major cities is becoming more and more of a thing. So that's modernism. The story of postmodernism, however, which is kind of a, becomes a big, scary word in the church. We're like, oh no, postmodernism sounds, sounds scary, relativism and so on, is basically a good reaction to the problem of modernism, but it hasn't replaced it with anything. Postmodernism says we've realized that that is absolute nonsense. That we have seen the last few world wars, and we've realized that human beings are not going to be able to think their way through to their eschaton, to their end time. 
So we're going to replace that with nothing. That's that, so in, in that sense, it, it responds to what was bad in mater- modernity, but doesn't replace it with another kind of end goal. And so what it replaces it with is, let's just kind of, let's be pragmatic. Let's do what works, rather than let's aim to get to the climax of humanity. And those kind of, those different stories end up intermeshing a little bit. So you'll meet someone like Richard Dawkins, he will very, who's very much thinking as a modernist. He's like, we as human beings can think our way through. You'll meet other people, and actually a lot more, particularly in major cities, who are just saying, really doesn't matter, let's just do what's right, what feels right, what works at the time. It doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong, it's whether it works is basically the thing. And so you've got, those I suppose are two main narratives that are underlying the whole thing. Um, And obviously neither of them are completely correct. Um, So we end up with a broken world, with broken thinking, where the narratives have been replaced, but people are looking through those narratives and assuming that they're just absolutely fine. And so that's the point where we need to think through how does the gospel respond to that? I'm going to finish with how the gospel ends up responding to the problem of broken thinking. The gospel is the solution to every human problem. So the gospel is the solution to the fact that death is in the world. The gospel is the solution to the fact that there is suffering in the world. The gospel is the solution to the fact that there is injustice and that there is sickness and that there is sin and that there is disease and that there is immorality and so on in the world. It is also the solution to the fact that there is wrong thinking in the world. And actually, if you read through Romans in in one go and remember that one of the problems that Paul pointed to in chapter one was the fact that wrong thinking underlined a lot of what humans were doing. You read through it and you get through the climax all the way where suddenly we get to the climax in chapter 8 where Paul says there's no condemnation and halfway through he says those who live by the Spirit think about the things of the Spirit. The broken mind has been restored in the gospel. And the way that works is the gospel tells an alternative narrative. So if we can have the next, next slide up at this point. The gospel tells a different story to the one that the world is saying. So modernism says, as human beings, we are reaching our climax and we are going to get to our end goal. And the gospel says, in the beginning was God. And so the gospel comes along and collides with every single story that human beings have underpinned their existence with and collides. And we can see that in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 25. Paul says... The word of the cross that we've heard about, you've heard about already over this conference, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we proclaim a crucified Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is a really helpful passage, particularly in light of what Tom was talking about earlier. We need to realize that when we preach the gospel, we're preaching an alternative narrative which without the work of the Holy Spirit will collide because there will be points where there's just fundamental disagreement between the narratives. Modernity says we are reaching our climax on our own. The gospel says you will never reach your climax on your own. There will be points of collision, and that's really good news because the Holy Spirit is the way of actually solving 
capitalism. But in those days, you had Jews who thought, we, we want signs, we want miracles and wonders to prove that this is true. You had Greeks who were saying, we want rhetoric and wisdom, and we want people who can speak really well, and it doesn't matter whether what they say actually makes sense, as long as they convince us with rhetoric. And Paul says, that's not the story we preach. We preach the story of a crucified Messiah, which for Jews is an absolute contradiction in terms. You can't have a Messiah who's crucified because they're supposed to defeat the Romans. So that means that they would be defeated by the Romans. That makes no sense. And to Greeks, that's folly. You, fo- you follow a man who was crucified? Really? There's conflict and collision that goes on, and that's not a problem. We need to be comfortable with the fact that when we proclaim the gospel, there will be collision in term- because you've got worldviews that are colliding. And when worldviews collide, it doesn't sit comfortably on people because you are looking at the very assumptions that underpin the way they think. But, this is a practical note, there are also points of connection. So when the apostles preached the gospel, very often what they would do is, if they were preaching to Jews, they would essentially summarize the story of the Old Testament and show that Jesus is the climax of it. Why? Because the Jews had the story that suggested they were God's people and the Messiah would come. And what happens is the apostles connected the story of the gospel with the story that they lived with. And there would be points of collision, such as the Messiah being crucified. But what they did is they looked for the points of contact. What are the points of contact between the story that we're telling in the gospel and the story of the people that we're preaching to? And in Acts 17, when Paul's preaching to pagan philosophers in Athens, he can't talk about the Old Testament story because they had no clue what he'd be on about. So instead, he took the story that they were familiar with. We worship loads of gods, and we worship an unknown god. And in some way, which still baffles me when I read it, he connects the story of the gospel with that story. And then there will be a point of collision when he preaches, but he connects it with theirs. So it's just worth thinking through, actually, when you're talking to your friends, and you're thinking, how do I, like, thinking through, what's the story they're living with? And how can I show the points of connection between the gospel so that actually, as the points of collision arrive, we see points of revelation that happen. Because Paul says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this, this is really, really important. Again, just basically down, download Tom's sermon and listen to it again is my main point for this. The Holy Spirit brings revelation to people when they hear the gospel. Our aim is not to present a watertight argument to convince them on every single detail. Our aim is to present an alternative narrative. So here's, here's, what, here's, here's the story that underpins your way of thinking. Here is the story of the gospel. And at the points of collision, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit is the one who suddenly reveals that to them. The natural person, the person who thinks in a human way, cannot understand the story of the gospel unless God reveals it to them. And so I think amen to everything that Tom said this morning. I think it's really much the, the application. And so what happens... Is remember the bouncy castle illustration? You've got kind of okay, okay ways of thinking on a foundation that's all wobbly. When you come to know Christ, what happens is the foundation changes. And so at that point, you're able to build a way of thinking on top of a solid foundation. You haven't replaced the glory of God for images and so on. You've got that solid foundation of Christ, which means then right thinking can be built on top of it. You're not always wobbling around trying to think, oh, how, how does that work? And so we need the power of the Spirit, the revelation that the Holy Spirit brings as we talk to our friends about Jesus. And I think it's really, really, it's essential to realize that we are not called to present a watertight argument that will make sense to them. 
because there will be points where it doesn't make sense to them. And that's absolutely fine. What we're called to do is to proclaim the alternative narrative as clearly and as faithfully as possible and pray that God gives revelation at the points where the two narratives collide so that actually suddenly they go from seeing the word of the cross as something of absolute folly and then they see it as God's wisdom. It takes the work of the Spirit to do that. You can't take someone who thinks the cross is stupid and then have them suddenly turn around and say, oh, that's fine if the Holy Spirit doesn't work in them. And so that's one of the most encouraging things to know is that actually we're responsible for giving the letter of the gospel. We're like postmen. We're given a letter. We have to give it to the people that it's destined for. We don't, we don't then have the responsibility of convincing them that the letter is all fine in every single detail. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so whilst we are faithful to make sure that we link together people's stories and the gospel, there will be points of conflict, which means that we need the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's foundational in everything. Which means that Paul can then say, even if our gospel is veiled, it was veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. There's the alternative narrative with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says, God has shone his light into our hearts. It's not some human narrative. It's the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that has illuminated that. And so as a result, people can be saved as a result of the Holy Spirit's work showing them that their way of thinking was wrong and the new way of thinking suddenly becomes appealing. Suddenly they look at it and think, that is God's wisdom. I'd never seen that. How did I not see that before? They've been looking at it straight in the face. What it needed is the work of the Spirit to come along and to say, that is God's wisdom. And that's exactly what happens when someone comes to know Christ. However dramatic or gradual it is, God is using his Holy Spirit to reveal the wisdom of God in the cross. And so that's kind of how the the gospel is a solution to wrong thinking. You basically replace the very foundation of wrong thinking with what is correct. God is back in his right place, and the narrative is the correct narrative. And then we have a good foundation to then build good, godly gospel thinking on it, um, which we'll look at a bit more tomorrow. But I think we've got 15 minutes, so what do you you want to do? Q&A or? Five Q&A? Yep. Sure, no problem. So, um, if you guys have any questions, yeah?
so you're saying that like human, human beings have a kind of ingrained sense of what's right or wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yep. Yeah, sorry, I've just answered. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's correct. Although the, the thing with deception and the thing with what you see Paul saying is that actually there is a need for the gospel. And so although, yes, they are without excuse, there is a, there's a lack, there's a, they are without excuse, but there's also, uh, at the same time, there's an inability to come to John as a result of it. So in that sense, human beings, by, by virtue of being created in the image of God, do have, which is why actually, there are many ethical things that, by and large, very often transcend culture. Not, not universally, but very often certain ethical issues. But it is wrong to murder. Most cultures in the world will say that that's true. Some, some, some won't, and so on. But actually, so there is a sense of human beings being created in the image of God that still remains. But actually, the truth has been suppressed to such an extent that there is there is a need for a, a gospel, the gospel, and the gospel comes to correct that and brings it. A lot of what, what we're doing here, by the way, is, oh, yeah, so um, basically, so how do we, because obviously people who think this way, um, you want to, are you saying you, you want to try and kind of help them see why they're thinking that way? Is that what you're, yeah. yeah. So there might be some groundwork to be done before. Um, yes, which so what we were doing here was not kind of an exercise in here's how we now tell people. So yes, there's, there are walls that will need demolishing. Our, our job actually is not to demolish these. Our job is to proclaim the alternative narrative and then the very foundation that these things built on comes up. So in that sense, um, what we're doing here is we're thinking through what is it that underpins that way of thinking. But we don't go charging in saying, by the way, you do realize that what underpins that way of thinking is this. We're actually proclaiming the gospel as the alternative narrative, which is why actually we didn't like we didn't look into it too much. I think because that wasn't necessarily the, the role of the seminar. But how we connect the story of the gospel with people's stories is really important. So I'd say listening to people is a huge thing. When Paul went to Athens, he spent a long time before preaching looking around the city. He didn't come in saying, "Here's all the things that's wrong with you." He came in and said, "Here's your story. I'm now going to tell you the true story that connects with that." and 
yeah, we, we, so in that sense, we're not going in. This, this is us thinking through what underpins it. Our job is to proclaim the gospel, and then as a result of that, the very foundation that underlines this gets removed. And whilst there, might, there will be residual stuff that needs to be worked through, God's the one who can actually deal with this, as opposed to us trying to dismantle it for people. So we're not, we're not dismantling the wall, we're replacing the foundation, or God's replacing the foundation as we proclaim the gospel. Does that make sense? So how, how to connect the gospel with people, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's important, but we're not all Tim Keller, is another thing to realize. So you can listen to Tim Keller and think, how on earth do you do that? Tim Keller reads so many books, is aware of what everyone's thinking, and I think there's probably a, a higher responsibility on, on people who are actually publicly preaching, maybe, to actually a, a congregation in Manhattan that actually thinks in that particular way. We're, we're not all called to be Tim Keller. What we're, called is, what we're called to do is to listen to people, to love people, and to proclaim the gospel in a loving way. And actually, God, through that, ends up changing the way they think. So I think, yeah, let, let's, let's try and do more of what Tim Keller does. But don't put yourself under the pressure of thinking, I have to do what Tim Keller does, because he is unusually gifted in that area. And I think what I'm saying is, a bit more simply, what are people thinking? Where does the gospel connect with that? so that you can find a way in and how can you then get the gospel in and God's the one who ends up working it through. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think we're going to have to stop there for questions or was there another one? One more. Oh, okay. Um, sorry, I, I, can, I can chat to you after if you want. Okay. Sorry, yeah. this is actually linked to maybe your question. Um, I think my question is, what, so where then would apologetics come in mm. to this? Um, because there is, there is, yeah. There is place for that, but where does that come in, in in terms of now that we have that knowledge? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Where does apologetics come in? Um, on one level, what's interesting is the the way that a lot of people think nowadays. The way apologetics is classically done is not actually what they're looking for. Some people do. Some people are very kind of. I mean, I've, you've heard stories of people who just kind of like you almost reason their their way to being a, being a Christian. Obviously, that doesn't remove the fact that it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But I think, I don't think people in our culture nowadays are going around actually thinking through, here is how Christianity intellectually doesn't make sense. I think people just don't care very often. And so at that point, presenting a, a rational argument, does, so, which is why I think it is really important to listen to people, think, what, what's actually underlying what you're, what you're saying? So I think apologetics, apologetics is important, but I don't, I think if apologetics becomes, we can rationalize people into the kingdom, then it's, then, then that's not the right way of doing apologetics. I think the right way of doing apologetics is to show people that actually the message holds together. The message is consistent. But I don't think apologetics on its own, without the work of the Spirit, I mean, apologetics, to be, we, we say apologetics, um, actually, when Peter, when in First Peter, when Peter says you must always be be ready to make an answer for the hope that's within you, that's where we get our word apologetics from. So fundamentally, apologetics is apologizing in the sense of I'm explaining why I believe what I believe, and that might not necessarily be. Have you looked at this evidence about how actually evolution couldn't have happened without some kind of guiding? Not, it might be for some people, but actually, what it can come down to is here's why I believe what I believe. Jesus has changed me. 
and actually proclaiming an alternative narrative does not necessarily mean that you have to have the answer for every single question someone's been asked. Mm. Um, and so I think apologetics is important, but if we see it as a way of rationalizing people into becoming a Christian, I think that can, that can end up being a, a slightly, I don't know, you're putting too much on, on reason at that point. And I think the whole part of the point actually is God very often does what people think is stupid until you become a Christian and you see that. And so, yeah, I think apologetics is important. I love people like Michael Ramsden and, um, and, and so on. But I think we mustn't put more weight on apologetics than it can bear. We need to do apologetics in the most fundamental sense, which is giving, giving a reason for the hope that's within us, which doesn't require us to be rocket scientists or microbiologists. It requires us to know the story of the gospel and to know our friends' stories and to love them and proclaim the gospel. Does that make sense? Yeah? Cool. Okay. Thank you. Brilliant. So helpful, mate. So helpful. We've just got five minutes. So I suppose I wanted to just maybe give you guys some things to reflect on. Probably don't have time to um, do any group work, but maybe just some things to reflect on for ourselves out of, out of what's come here. Um, I'd like you maybe to just write down some bits and bobs to, to ask yourself. Maybe if you, if you do get a quiet moment in the next 24 hours, who knows? It's possible. Um, where are, so ask yourself where are the, where where do you think the connection points and the collision points are in the stories that the people you're reaching are believing in the story of the gospel? So when you think about people in your world that you are connecting with, sharing Jesus with, where are the connection points? Where are the collision points? Acts seventeen is a good a good story to read because. As Ben referred to, he goes around Athens and he observes some things. And then he talks about his observations. He, he really does engage with their story. He quotes from their poets. And then he comes in with a real strong bit of, on Jesus, which leads to mo- a lot of them, you know, mocking him. So he's not avoiding, he's not doling anything down. But there's this collect connection and the collision. Have a think about that with the people of peace that God has given you access to. So that you can be wise in your in your sharing, and we can emulate um, the apostolic way. Um, another question to maybe to ask yourself is, where have you bought into the wrong story? So where are you? What narratives? What storylines about life, meaning of life, what life's about? Are you prone to buying into? Um, are you prone to to? Be, so I'll give an ex- example. Um, you know, it's all about me. <laughs> Would be an uh, an obvious one. You know, our culture is it's the sovereign self, isn't it? Rather than sovereign God, and it's all about me. And so, basically, what that look, how that manifests is that when life is inconvenient, I am unduly flustered. Right? Why? Because it's all about me, and I'm feeling really hassled here. So, because it's all about me. The fact that this is inconvenient is a big deal. And sometimes we never stop to actually uh, understand why I'm being so bothered by this. Do, do you see what I mean? What are the, what, what are the stories? What are the, what are the messages? What are the mini, mini gospel replacements? You may need a bit of reflection. If you just think, oh, no idea, sit down, chat to one or two friends, talk about people that, you know, think about 
your emotional responses to things in life? What gets to you? What really gets under your skin? What really gets you excited? These will help you to just understand yourself and the things that you are that you're holding really dear. Um, so there's there's a thing to to maybe ponder, reflect upon, um, in order for you to then ask, what element of the gospel of the gospel is that a direct challenge to? Where does the gospel actually say no? This, yes, it's all about me. No, it's all about you, Jesus. Is th- so that's a really obvious one. Sometimes it's a bit more subtle, but hopefully you understand um, the principle there. Um, And then similarly, what creative things do you tend to replace him with? So some examples in in the eastern part of the world, it can be family can be all, can't it? Family is all. And um, what will my family think is the first thing you think. Um, In totalitarian countries like North Korea, it's the state. Isn't it? You know, your devotion is primarily to the state. Um, in the West, it can be any number of causes. Certain animals, the planet, charity work, me, <laughs> um, what celebrity, celebra- certain celebrities. What, what, where, where am I vulnerable in terms of where can my devotion easily go? What object, what created object? Can it easily go to? And then you ask yourself, what am I What am I looking for in that? What am I looking for in that? And how does how is Jesus the true answer to that? Does that make sense? Because you can't just rid yourself of those things. They have to be replaced. You don't exist in a vacuum. You can't just say, I've got to deal with that. Because it's like some sort of idol. You have to know, actually, how does the true object of my worship really speak into this thing here so idols can't just be got rid of they have to be replaced with the true god or else as soon as you rid it another idol will just come and take its place that makes sense so just some things to reflect on to think about um to help you maybe sort of take away um these things as we try and ponder this stuff together so i'll pray and then we're done so father thank you for this time of being able to um just stop press pause and think about the way we think And understand your assessment of us. And I pray you'd help us to be humble, Lord. And and really engage seriously with your assessment of us. Your assessment of me. Your assessment of us. Help us, Lord, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Help us, Lord, to develop habits that renew our minds. Really good habits. Not just filling our notepads, thinking that will renew our minds. Help us, Lord, in, in applying ourselves, in br- building things into our lives, Lord, that will transform us because it will renew our minds. Lord, just, we, just, we just say, Lord, uh, thank you that you are engaged in this process of transformation. It's you that transforms us from one degree of glory to another. Help us engage with you. Help us not be passive. Help us to really run with you, Lord. Um, so that nothing of your work will be at all hindered in our lives. For your glory and for the good of our world, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless, guys. Thanks a lot. Enjoy your dinner. See you back here tonight. I think it's uh, in our seats for 7.20.